Well, it's great to be with you again. Thank you, uh, the, the remnant who came back. Uh, and uh, we're going to be looking at uh, a topic I rather like, which is the language of Jesus. I did a PhD on the Syriac of First Kings. So in a sense, I did a PhD in Aramaic, um, Syriac being Eastern Aramaic. And during my entire time doing that PhD, I believe that Jesus taught exclusively in Aramaic. I mean, that was what... Um, I just heard, I'd picked up from the air around me, and it's something I never questioned, uh, you know, and I, I'd done uh, various languages, just something I, I took for granted. I've now come to be convinced otherwise and hope to share a little bit uh, with you. But first, a little bit of a warning. Um, I lead an institution, and when you're leading an institution, um, you can be busy, and sometimes I cut corners in my research. Now, what I try and do is be honest when I'm cutting corners, and I'm just going to you know, tell you this is a corner I've cut, so you can go and, and do some more diligent uh, chasing up of things. I tend to work with the primary sources. I haven't read copious lots of literature that people have read on things. I, I, I just work with the sources. Therefore, I might come up with some ideas that need to be filtered through the wisdom of lots of other uh, things, and I put that out for you. But hopefully, we're going to have some fun looking at some primary texts. Um, just a bit of a, an, um, a plug here. A uh, bit of an advertisement is that uh, some of the material I'm going to share with you is in our popular magazine, comes out from Tyndale House, tinderhouse.com forward slash magazine. It would re be really good for you to sign up for that. It's completely free uh, and it is, I think, a unique magazine, a bit like National Geographic, um, written by scholars, peer-reviewed, but then going through the um, prism of people who actually know how to communicate. Uh, and therefore it's produced quite beautifully, um, and it's about the Bible. Uh, so uh, I think uh, hopefully you'd enjoy that, uh, tinnerhouse.com forward slash magazine. Um, let's start with one of the famous things that's said about Jesus's language, or supposedly. This is uh, Papias, early 2nd century, reported in 4th century Eusebius, saying Matthew compiled the oracles in the Hebrew dialect, and each one translated them as he was able. And this is something that gets talked about endlessly uh, in all sorts of um, introductions to uh, New Testament. Um, the idea that Matthew originally had them in some other language, whether the Hebrew dialect, some people would say means Hebrew, and some people say it means uh, Aramaic, and some people uh, would say it means Jewish whether that be Hebrew or Aramaic. It's just the language of the Jews, and you're not thinking of it quite in our uh, <clears throat> modern terms. Um, and uh, I think that's probably true. I mean, as in it's early, it sounds reasonable enough. Um, but I want to show you there's a source actually earlier than Papias, and that is Matthew himself. And I think Matthew presents Jesus as preaching in Greek. But let's look at some background stuff on uh, Jesus' language. In Mark's gospel, in particular, we have a number of times that Jesus speaks Aramaic. He says, Talitha kum, or Talitha kumi, to that 12-year-old girl in chapter 5. He, he, he says, Ephatha, um, uh, be opened to a deaf mute man. He says, Abba, in prayer. And on the cross, he speaks um, uh, those words, which are then misunderstood as he has his dereliction uh, cry. So, uh, that's an interesting thing because people often infer from this that Jesus taught in Aramaic or, or the New Testament says he taught in Aramaic. But sorry, speaking to a 12-year-old girl in Aramaic 
isn't the same as public teaching, a public educational language. Speaking to a deaf and dumb man is not the same as a public educational language. Your prayer language is not the same as a public educational language. And speaking from the cross and being misunderstood is not the same as a public educational language. So none of those actually give you direct support for Jesus teaching in Aramaic. Now, I am not saying Jesus did not teach in Aramaic. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying um, uh, we need to be able to uh, question these things and um, look at it that way. Now, this is where I'm going to skate on some thin ice, but I'm throwing out some ideas for research topics for you if you uh, need some. Because what I think happens in the 16th century with the age of discovery and lots of manuscripts coming from around the world is um, people publish the first Syriac New Testament. And, you know, discoverers get very excited about their discoveries. Sometimes they don't really see it in perspective. And so what they want to claim as they publish this uh, uh, Syriac New Testament is we've come up with Jesus's original words. And so that's where you get this um, uh, idea coming along. Next, and this is where I'm even thinner ice, but I think it's important, I blame the Romantic movement. Now, I don't, haven't actually read much of Romantic stuff, but this is my, my take on it. Why don't you go and do uh, the work if you think there's some basic plausibility to it? Which is that the Romantic spirit loves the idea of a, a Jesus who's in some sense primitive, a primitive human spirit uncorrupted by nasty Greek education. And therefore, it really takes off from there that the idea that Jesus not only speaks Aramaic, but doesn't speak Greek. He hasn't been affected by Greek. Now, in the 19th century, and I'll actually I'll talk about Bart Ehrman. Now, skeptics like Bart Ehrman today obviously emphasize Aramaic as language of Jesus. In the 19th century, the most influential writer on Jesus as a, a scholar was Ernst Renan. And this is what he says. It's not probable that Jesus knew Greek. This language was very little spread in Judea beyond the classes who participate in the government and the towns inhabited by the pagans like Caesarea. The real mother tongue of Jesus was the Syrian dialect mixed with Hebrew, which was then spoken in Palestine. Still less probably had he any knowledge of Greek culture. Now, this sort of makes your jaw drop because anyone who's read anything like in the last... Um, a few dozen, uh, a few, few, few decades in New Testament knows there's been a huge emphasis since Martin Hengel and others on Hellenism and how um, Hellenistic culture, if not the language, at least was spread uh, throughout Palestine. But here you have uh, someone, of course, pre-Dead Sea Scrolls, pre a lot of discoveries, but hugely influential, presenting you this idea of uh, this Jesus who isn't infected uh, by uh, nasty Greek education. And this actually becomes one of what I call Bart Ehrman's distance creators. So as he's um, building his optimal system, and he really is optimized system, um, to uh, not have Jesus uh, being reliably reported in the New Testament, he manages to create a number of distances. It can be whether you've got the gospel writers and then what's actually in the manuscripts. Or Jesus is different from the gospel writers. Or Jesus is uh, rural, countrified, but the gospel writers are um, they're, they're town folk. But an Aramaic Jesus, you have, speaking that, and the gospels, of course, in Greek, illiterate disciples, literate evangelists, and so on. And so what I, I would say is that you have a number of these distance creators he builds up. He manages to minimize the population of Christians. So even around the year 100, there's only about 10,000 in the Roman Empire. All of these things um, 
uh, he's, he's done the work um, to, to build that into a plausibility structure, and this is just one piece of it. Um, so what evidence do we have for Greek speaking at the time? Well, we have Greek Gospels, which I think is an interesting thing, just to start off. The fact that you have Greek Gospels, um, gr Greek education is clearly the majority education language for the early Christians. Those, those are the ones uh, that uh, took off. But also, remember, the Holy Family had that little uh, trip down to Egypt. Now, how, how long did that last for? Uh, maybe only 18 months, maybe only three months. We don't know. But when they arrive in Egypt, um, how, how, do, how do they get by? If, if Joseph's working, what language is he going to speak? Well, he can speak um, late Egyptian, but isn't it, you know, there's a huge, that, that, but uh, arguing that Joseph spoke Coptic is going to be a bit more of a stretch than say that he spoke Greek. I mean, particularly they would probably go somewhere like Alexandria, where there's a big population of Greek-speaking Jews, could be some other places, and, and, and practice your business there. So for at least a little while, they'll be having some exposure to Greek. But also we have the fact that Jesus is an itinerant uh, uh, speaker, uh, itinerant preacher, and so uh, they're systematically going through towns and villages. And if you're itinerant, you really need to just speak whatever people are speaking where you go. Notice that two of the 12 disciples have Greek names, uh, which is an interesting thing. And one of them, Andrew, has this name Andreas. Now, Andreas is not as common a name as Andrus uh, at the time. And oh, it's interesting that you've got this fishing business at the centre of Jesus' disciples, isn't it? And amongst them, you've got uh, Simon Peter, the older brother, called Peter, by the way, more often than Cephas, far more often in the New Testament than Cephas. Um, uh, you have him and his parents decide to call one of their children Andreas, which is a relatively uncommon Greek name. Now, that doesn't mean that the parents were necessarily fluent uh, in, um, in, in Greek. Uh, Simon's uh, father seems to be called jo John or, uh, or Jonah, um, and he's Bar Jonah. So they, they, but what's interesting is they're doing this um, fishing business on this lake, which is about, you know, the most five miles wide, and you've got fishing um, uh, points all the way around, uh, uh, ports, docks, whatever you want to call them, uh, landing grounds, uh, across from the east-speaking Decapolis. I mean, if you just go two, three miles into the centre of the lake and you have to talk to another boat, what language are they engaging in? Or when you have James and John's fishing business and they, they have hired workers who are not on long-term contracts, they presumably have lots of different workers coming uh, to and fro. Don't they have to engage with the different languages uh, that come through there? And they're based in Capernaum, which is, of course, around the top of the Sea of Galilee on uh, the major route. And don't forget that Peter and Andrew come from Bethsaida. And wherever you locate that, it seems to be in the Greek-speaking uh, territory, which I think is an interesting uh, thing. Jesus engages with various uh, people. Remember, people have this trouble, like how can you have Jesus saying, be born again and be born from above in John chapter 3, if he's speaking Aramaic to Nicodemus? Why does he have to be speaking Aramaic to Nicodemus? That isn't ever such a Greek name. Now, if you want to... People speak languages for a couple of different reasons. One is for sort of romantic reasons where they, they like the feel of their language. They, yeah, that's why people learn Cornish, which is basically extinct today, because they, they have a feel, a romantic attachment to that. But the more common reason to learn any language is to do with business and getting on. That's why most people do things. And that's why um, 
you find that actually, if you want to get on in the Roman Empire in the first century, the Eastern Roman Empire, they're using Greek. That's the language that's going to move you forward. So you might, you know, work on your Hebrew because you're romantically attached to it because you, uh, you know, romant, I'm using this broad sense, because you um, are attached to the Torah. That, that's a good reason to learn Hebrew. But that doesn't sort of get you on uh, in uh, career in, in, in secular terms. And you'll see the same in the US, that um, people can come from all sorts of countries to here, but they generally, within a generation or two, are switching over to English because that's the thing that's going to help them forward uh, career-wise. Um, I love this man Bartimaeus because I think, wow, he's Bar plus Timaeus, the name of one of Plato's dialogues. Did his grandfather like Plato? And so, because you know, his his father's called Pla you know Timaeus. Uh, I don't know. It's interesting that Greek had got so far um, that the main uh, grouping. The governing body of the Jews was given Sunhedrion, the sitting together, a Greek name. I mean, that's really interesting for me, just how far it got. But then we have the words that Jesus uses. The word hypocrite, the word Hades, the word paraclete. Let me go through those. He uses the word hypocrite a lot. It means actor. And there he is. He, he, he grows up in Nazareth within four miles of Sepphoris where there's a theatre. Now, almost certainly he's using the Greek word for actor because Aram Greek, Greek culture has theatre, Roman culture has theatre, Aramaic culture doesn't, and Hebrew culture doesn't. So you can always find a secondary term for how they would have translated it. But the very idea of actor is a Greek thing. So Jesus seems to be calling people actors, presumably using that Greek word. Um, three times he refer on three different occasions he refers uh, to Hades, which is a very interesting uh, thing to do. And of course, apparently there in John, fascinating in John seven, where uh, the crowd are saying, "Hey, is he going to go off to the Greek diaspora and teach the Greeks? Well, how would he do that if he didn't know any Greek?" So the crowd seem to think he's perfectly capable of going off to the diaspora. Now I want to look at the Lesson on the Mount. I call it the Lesson on the Mount rather than the Sermon on the Mount because I want to get away from the idea that it's a speech. Yes, Latin sermo, called that by um, Augustine. Maybe it goes earlier than Augustine. I haven't looked that up. I cut that corner. Uh, but uh, I, I, th I think what he... The, the problem I have with the idea of Sermon on the Mount is that it's suggesting that it's just delivered in one go, and that's what the record we have of it. Whereas the emphasis we've got at the beginning of this lesson on the mount is he went up on the mountain and he taught them. And what we have is his lesson. Now, let's look at how it begins. Who's the crowd? The crowd that come to this lesson are great crowds from Galilee, the Decapolis, the 10 Greek-speaking cities, Jerusalem and Judea. And beyond the Jordan. Now, what is the use of him striking up in his yokel, um, if he had it, uh, Galilean Aramaic to a load of people from the Decapolis? Now, we know what happens with languages, that you have a hierarchy in languages. So that if, let's say, in, give a European example, six Brits and six Germans get together to have a business conversation, almost certainly that conversation will be in English. That's just the way it is. And you can have that in all sorts of situations. Now, what happens when some Greek speakers and some Aramaic speakers get together in the same crowd? If you have to choose one language, you're going to choose Greek. Now, 
I think I can demonstrate that Jesus engages with Aramaic and uh, Greek. Uh, and particularly if you see it as a lesson, he can do it bi- uh, bilingually, uh, he, you know, or he can have approved translation. All sorts of options are there. So he goes up into the mountain and he taught them. And what's he teach them? He teaches them this. Now, these are the Beatitudes. Okay, the first eight Beatitudes up there in Greek. So a bit more technically demanding, but let's have a look uh, at this. The first beatitude, blessed are the poor in spirit. The word poor begins with a letter pi. The word spirit begins with a letter pi. The next beatitude, those who mourn. The the, uh, next one, meek. Next one, hungering. You see in a row, four of them begin with a letter pi. Now, either Matthew is saying, hey, I'm really creative in the way I present Jesus. I'm happy to give him alliteration. By the way, complete license here for Baptists to use alliteration. You know, just do it. It's biblical. Okay. Um, but notice that in a sense it begins with a bang. Poor in spirit, both of those words are begin with a pie. And the second beatitude, those who mourn, uh, for they will be comforted. But looking a bit further, you then have uh, verse 6, those who hunger and thirst, and the word thirst is delta iota, di, for righteousness, delta iota, di. Um, verse 8, those who are pure, kappa alpha, catheters, uh, all sorts of things like that, purify in heart, cardiologists. Kappa Alpha. Then you have the um, eighth one, verse 10, those who are persecuted for righteousness. Persecute, the, the, the stem um, verb dioko begins delta iota. You reduplicate the deltas, you get an extra one, uh, and you've got that righteousness beginning delta iota. But you go more, because of course, in the blessed of the merciful, verse 7, you're repeating the stem mercy. But then I had this difficulty. I had one that didn't have repeated sound. But then I remembered, I kicked myself, that Omicron Iota here, this is blessed are the peacemakers, uh, in the normally reconstructed pronunciation of the time is U. So blessed are the peacemakers would be I, Re, No, Pu, U. Okay. Um, And then, because they will be called sons, which would be U, U. And that's a very... Um, you know, widely understood way of doing this. So all of them have this repeated sound. What's more, try and turn this set into Greek, into Hebrew or Aramaic, and you won't get the smooth clause joining you get here. Because what we've got is with the first and last Beatitudes, because there's hoti altoin, and all of the middle ones, because they hoti altoi. Now, if you try and do that in a Semitic languages, you're going to have to use a, 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 a relative particle, be it an asher, a sher in Hebrew, or a dalet in, in, in Aramaic. Then you're going to have to do something like because to them or for them, or you're going to have to do something and maybe resume it at the end. You're not going to get this smooth join at all. It just doesn't work. And I can show you that if you like. Then we have this amazing thing that five of the Beatitudes end with ontai, four of them with Thesontai. Okay, all lots of sound here. Then we have the fact that in dark blue, the sigmatic plurals, plurals with sigma, are grouped together, and in grey, the omicron iota plurals are grouped together. A colleague from Cambridge uh, commenting on how much pi is actually a preferred um, alliterative uh, letter. Uh, I think it's probably still the case in English that, that P is uh, one of those most preferred uh, things in, in, in sermons. Um, and just try this in Hebrew. 
I, I, I've just used a Hebrew translation of the Beatitudes from 1886, and you get a bit of a, um, alliteration or assonance between number one and three, the, the poor in spirit and the meek, uh, but you don't really get much more, uh, and uh, so on. Now, that's just one thing, and I think Matthew here is presenting Jesus, is teaching in Greek. But then we have this thing. Um, you're the salt of the earth, but if the salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? You, uh, but in Greek, we have this word, uh, marino, uh, which is translated commonly uh, to lose its taste. But actually, normally, it means to be stupid. So we look at uh, this common dictionary, BDAG, which is helpful and sometimes misleading. Um, and what it does is it tells you this word can mean to be foolish. That's meaning number one. So that's the first nine lines read. And then uh, the last four lines of this entry, you have to make tasteless. And how does it justify that meaning? Well, it appeals to this guy called M. Black, Matthew Black, who wrote Aramaic Approach to the Gospels. The way you get this meaning is by saying, really behind that Greek word is this Aramaic meaning. But if you just take it as Greek, you wouldn't suppose that it means this. It really is Jesus saying, if the salt has become stupid. Now, you may puzzle with that, but Jesus sometimes teaches cryptically. Now, I want you to notice here, as we go on, he, he, he's talking about the salt. This is straight after the Beatitudes. He then talks about the salt uh, that if it's, it's become stupid or lost its savour, if you prefer, it's no longer good for anything except to be trampled underfoot. Then your light of the world, the city set on the hill and can't be hidden, uh, nor the people light a lamp. Look at all those cappers that are coming up, okay? To be trodden, the world, to be hidden, to uh, set on a hill or to light a lamp. What's the next letter in the alphabet? Oh, that would be lambda. No, so they get a lamp and they light it and so on, let your light show shine before men. Uh, then let's throw an M in there. Uh, I like this word modius uh, because modius is, of course, a, a nice... Um, modius is a word that travels around. It's a Latin word for a measure. Um, and uh, it's interesting that Jesus is uh, using uh, that particular sort of physical measure that you could put uh, a lamp under. And Jesus uses eight different Latin words. Uh, in, in the words of Jesus, you get these are Latin words which are loaned then into Greek. Uh, and some, uh, quite a few of them are, um, sorry, I'm going to go back, um, are finance related, uh, some military or measurement. Um, but every single one of them, uh, this is in the far right column, is attested in Aramaic dialects, which I find really interesting thing, just about Jesus' use of Latin. Um, it's not that every Latin word was used in Greek, but there are particular Latin words for military, finance, that sort of stuff, uh, that make it way out east and are also in the Aramaic dialects. That doesn't prove my point either way. Now, Jesus says to them shortly afterwards, uh, truly I say to you, until heaven or earth pass away, not a iota, will pass some law, nor a uh, scribal, what someone calls a tittle, a kariah, uh, which could be taken to mean um, one of those bits you get on a Hebrew letter. Now, people obviously usually translate this as a jot or a letter yod, and there is an equivalence between iota and yod as uh, letters historically. I just find this interesting. Then we have this amazing bit of rhetorical engagement where Jesus talks about calling people fools. Anyone who says the Aramaic word raka goes to the Greek judgment, Gehenna, uh, sorry, Sanhedrion. Anyone who says the Greek word moron goes to the Aramaic judgment, Gehenna, right? Now, I'm not saying that 
you know, one lot, if you say the word fool in one language, you get different judgment from if you say fool in another language. Okay, I don't think Jesus was saying that, but I think Jesus was absolutely engaging his audience. And this is the brilliance of it, the way, the way he, he does that. Um, that these were words which could be uh, recognised. So let's say he was delivering it in Greek. It may not be delivered. It may be repeated. You do it in, he does it in both languages. I don't know. I know we've got faithful records of what, what he, he taught. But one possibility is he, he's, he's delivering it in Greek, but throwing in things for the Aramaic speakers. And actually, insults sometimes get recognised you know, uh, more widely. Interestingly, here we are still on Matthew 5. I tell you, you won't get out of that until you paid the last quadrans. That's a nice uh, Latin con, coin in there. Um, what about this? Um, let your yes be yes and your no be no. This is a saying picked up, of course, in 2 Corinthians. It's picked up in James. What's the Hebrew word for yes? What's the Aramaic word for yes? They don't, actually, a lot of languages don't have yeses particularly available. I can find a Hebrew word for yes if I need to, or an Aramaic word for yes if I need to, but they don't go around doing yes and no's the same way as we, as we do, or Greek did. Let your yes be yes and your no be no is a saying that works beautifully in Greek, but it doesn't work uh, in Hebrew or Aramaic. And yet it's a saying that clearly seems to go back to Jesus. If anyone forces you to go a mile, of course, a lovely Latin uh, word there, it was available both in Greek and Aramaic. We have throughout this sermon, he says, actors, 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 using that Greek word, hypocrites. Now for one of the two Greek words that Jesus invented. Um, Don't babble like the pagans. Now let's again look at our uh, dictionary, and I know it can be a lot of text to look in, uh, so what we do is it's about stammering again and again, and then you get to line five, and it gives you your two references to it, okay, Matthew 6, 7, and Luke 11, 2. Then it goes on, except for writers dependent on the New Testament, the word has only been found in V. Isopi, the life of Aesop, where uh, it's got actually a different spelling, um, and what you realise is Basically, it seems to come from the New Testament to be in Jesus' teaching. And then it gives you in the last three lines, it said, hey, it might come from this Aramaic word. And just if you look on the left-hand word uh, of, uh, on the third line to the bottom, you, uh, I'll read it. It's um, the left-hand Aramaic word. It's um, you know, BTL and saying it could be from that. Well, hang on. Whether or not that's right. If it's a Greek word which has been made up on the basis of Aramaic, don't you think that someone like Jesus would be an ideal candidate for making it up? Now let's move on. Sorry, I could have given you that all in bigger print. Okay, the other word Jesus invented. The word, give us our daily bread in the Lord's Prayer. Now there's a whole debate about this because it's a word that doesn't really occur very commonly except for in Matthew and Luke's account of the Lord's Prayer. And Origen in here says that it's a term coined by the evangelists. So that is Matthew or Luke made it up. But hang on. How can... Now, Origen doesn't know about Q. <laughs> <clears throat> yeah, I'm, I'm not being that serious there. But the, 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 the point is, uh, in Q theory, you, ha- uh, you have to have... Q invents it, and then Matthew and Luke independently both think, oh, let's use this obscure term uh, because we like Q. Um, Then 
in, there are other synoptic models. You can have Luke using Matthew, but then Matthew invented it. Okay? But isn't the simplest model in all just to say, Jesus came up with a word. That's how it made its way into both Gospels. That seems to me um, the simplest model. Going on in, in Matthew 6, uh, if your eye is uh, single, uh, the King James says, um, if therefore thine eye be single, thy whole body shall be full of light. ESV, NIV, go for healthy. Well, does the word haplous mean single or healthy? The answer is yes, it means both. And we need both in the context. Because it's about you're not serving uh, God and mammon, you can't have two masters, and it's about the health of the body. It's about both, and it makes sense. It works if it's in Greek. Then we get a bit of alliteration here. 6.24, no one is able to serve two masters. Now, uh, there you've got that lovely delta sequence there, is able two masters to uh, serve. Um, this wonderful case in 6.27, which of you, by taking uh, thought, can add one cubit unto his stature, says the King James, uh, and ESV go for, uh, and NIV, single hour to span of life. Now, this word, ladies and gentlemen, clearly means cubit. It really just is the word for cubit. It means your forearm. That's what it means. And the, the modern translators are struggling with the idea that you can add a forearm to your length of life, right? Because it seems difficult to do that, doesn't it? Um, but this word, which is translated tran uh, stature and length of life, really does mean both of those. It can do both. So you can have the you know, Zacchaeus. He hasn't got that much. He's just small. But it also means length of life. But in the context, we need it to mean both because the context is going to be talking about uh, plants growing and also th um, things about uh, the, the plants not lasting long. It's, it's both. So that makes sense if Jesus actually uses this Greek word, it still makes Jesus' saying puzzling. Jesus has got some puzzling saying, sometimes deliberately cryptic, uh, often. Um, what about this? Do not judge so you be not judged, and what, whichever the judgment you use, uh, you'll be judged by, and whatever measure you measure with, it will be measured back to you. Now, what I want you to notice here is the, the KRI route there, and the three of them in green. Uh, the judgment you use, you will be judged by. Notice that you have KRI, 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 three adjacent words. Try doing that in Aramaic or in Hebrew. Your words will not be adjacent and they will not have that repeated sound. Then you have whatever measure you use will be measured back to you. M-E-T-R, M-E-T-R, M-E-T-R. And again, you won't be able to get that repetition if you turn it into... Here we got it in uh, Aramaic and... Um, what you've got in, in the green of the, uh, the Syriac there is you're actually going to have to change your vowels I've, um, uh, between those two. So one's going to be a dinar uh, for judgment. Then the next one's going to be dianine participle. It's just not going to work. Um, so what about this one? He gets the end of the, uh, of, 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 of the lesson. He says, beware, P-R-O, a false P-R-O's, prophets, who come to you in the sh uh, clothing of sheep, P-R-O's. They're pros. You know, I mean, this is the thing. I mean, this sort of saying really looks like alliteration in the saying itself. It's not being imposed by the evangelists on the saying. It is the saying. That, that's the, as in the shape of the Greek language has had an influence on the saying itself. Beware 
of false prophets who come to you like sheep. It just works with that. Or again, the next verse afterwards, nor do they gather sigma, um, um, grapes from thorns uh, or, or um, figs from uh, thistles. Again, we're seeing uh, sigma. Then we come on to the next bit. Now, th- what's in- interesting here um, is um, he's talking about good trees bearing good fruit, getting your caparalphas together, and um, uh, bad and doing uh, POs together, and trees being able, and so on. What you've got here is to get the two alliterated words together. Now, you're saying, well, this is only in Matthew so far. I'm going to show you the same thing happening with different sayings over in Luke. So, actually, it does seem that this all comes from, uh, from Jesus. So, let's go to the Sermon on the Plain, okay, uh, it, over in Luke. You don't begin with Beatitudes. Well, you begin with four Beatitudes and then four woes. And what we've got is, of course, the two Beatitudes that we begin with, begin with that pie stuff. Then we get a, some extra uh, pies as we uh, finish those off in verse 21. Then in verse 24, but, using the P but rather than the A but, the Allah, um, some, then we're going to do a deep dive with lots and lots of pies. Uh, and then, uh, you know, that's what they did to the false prophets before you. Lots of pies happening there. Um, Luke, Sermon on the Plain. Look at all these alphas uh, as we go for give to everyone who asks you from the one who uh, takes from you, do not ask back. And what we find is we've just got 110 words. Uh, we've got 22% of them beginning with alpha and 40% of the nouns, verbs, and adjectives over that thing. All of these different striking lexemes. By the way, you may, not, you may struggle to take notes and all this. That's fine. Um, I, I'm happy to share slides with people later. One of the corners I do cut is I don't publish sometimes stuff. So sorry about that. Now, let's look at, um, let's look at how Luke handles the judge stuff. Because what's interesting, you've got two different words in judge uh, in Luke, but they, that you've got the saying repeated, but it's kappa all the way through. Don't judge or you will be judged and do not condemn using a kappa or you will be condemned. Um, then we've got this thing about, and the measure that will be given to you is going to be, oh, lots of reduplicated perfect passive participles. Let's uh, pile them on. Then we've got measures measured to you. And then we've got the blind leading a blind man with the alliterative words stuck together but remember that here in Luke we've got blind men alliterating and over in Matthew we've got trees being able alliterating stuck together so one of the problems you've got to have is if you want the evangelist to be making this Greek you have to do the evangelist to have the same independent idea of how to alliterate Jesus's original Aramaic sayings now it also happens in Mark I'm going to make you fishers of men halies anthropon um, or the well don't need a doctor. Is is yeah true. Notice there in Mark, again you've got that same thing. You put the two alliterated words together, but there's different words from the ones in Matthew and the ones in Luke. It's the same technique, different gospels. Um, can the sons of the bride chamber n fast n while the bridegroom is with them n? Um, what measure will be used? It will be measured to you. Look at that in Mark 4, 24. The same um, technique of having these uh, alliteration. Or what about this? Um, the passion sayings. The son of man is going to be rejected, alpha, and killed, alpha, and he's going to rise again, alpha. Or if anyone would like to follow me, 
uh, Alpha. He needs to deny himself Alpha, take up his cross Alpha, and follow me Alpha. What profit shall it be to, for man to gain Kappa the whole world Kappa? Um, uh, and what can uh, someone give an exchange Alpha, uh, a man give as an exchange for their soul, Alpha Alpha? Um, or look at this. He says that uh, the Son of Man has to be rejected and killed and rise. But then you get this wonderful Ani uh, ending of the, uh, part of, uh, of, the, of the infinitives right the way throughout. Um, if anyone will follow it, well, you've already looked at that. Yeah, okay. Um, I don't know why I repeated there. Sorry. Um, okay, what about this? This is amazing. It's in Mark's Gospel. They will mock him and spit on him. EMP. Uh, and you just get this uh, repetition uh, in uh, Mark 10. The Son of Man didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give. Delta, delta, delta. Okay? Um, oh, what about the, uh, you know, the scribes and the Pharisees? What do they like? They like greetings in marketplaces. Alpha, alpha. And what they do is they make pr prayers, P-R-O, for pretense. Now, I know it works in English, P-R, doesn't it? Prayers and pretense. But it's the fact that this is happening some, um, all the time. By the way, it's not just alliteration on its own. Because, I mean, after all, that way you would think... <coughs> Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and life in Latin because it comes out with three V's in a row. But it's, it's the fact that it's a pattern throughout. That's a significant thing. Now, coming towards the end, uh, turn back to my friend Bart Ehrman, and I want to bring in the subject of the letter of Jude. His, this is his clincher argument for why Jude, the brother of Jesus, could not have written the letter of Jude. The letter itself gives scant reason for accepting the inscription, and many critical scholars think that it's another example of early Christian pseudepigraphy. Jesus' brother, uh, Jesus's brother Jude, of course, would have been a lower-class Aramaic-speaking peasant. Uh, indeed, we learn from sources dating to the second century that Lee's family didn't have much, uh, you know, um, social class. So Jude can't be by Jude because the Greek's too good. Can't we reverse-engineer the argument and say, but if Jude is Jesus's brother and he spoke good Greek? Why can't Jesus have spoken good Greek? Can't I use Jude's good Greek as evidence for Jesus knowing some Greek? What about this argument? Bard Ehrman on James. The real glincher, though, is one that we have seen before in relation to both Peter and Jude. The author has written a very fluent and rhetorically effective composition in Greek. He is intimately familiar with the Greek version of the Old Testament. The historical Jesus, on the other hand, was an Aramaic-speaking peasant. The peasant! There aren't any Greek-speaking peasants on the planet. Peasants don't speak Greek. I mean, like, give me a break. Now, I want to come to a different sort of line of argument, just to finish off. The monastery of the Holy Family. This is the monastery in honour of Mary's traditional parents, Joachim and Anna. Okay? Where is it? Sepphoris. Traditionally... Mary is believed to have come from a Greek-speaking town. In fact, the, now, okay, the tradition may only be the 6th century, the Piacenza pilgrim, talking about Dio Caesarea, uh, which is Mary's, uh, which is um, another name for Sepphoris, and talks about how uh, there we went and referenced the pail and the basket of the Blessed Mary. I'm not saying all the, you know, these traditions are necessarily reliable. But I am saying it wasn't me what came up with the idea that Mary came from a Greek-speaking area. It's actually tradition. So we actually have to question this whole idea that you can cut Jesus' family off from Greek-speaking. So I did put uh, 
some of this in an article, um, popular article, but there's still a lot to be written up. And there's loads of research to do. Particularly, I'd love someone to research the whole history of the idea of what different languages Jesus spoke. I was listening to Thomas Hobbes' audio book the other day, and it's saying, of course, he spoke Greek. Oh, that's interesting. Didn't know that, um, that Hobbes thought that. And, and, and there are just lots of people down history. What have people thought? And why have we had the twists and turns? And why do we arrive in this particular state where you talk to a standard group of educated Baptists, and they're going to think default that Jesus spoke Aramaic? as a teaching language. We need to find out what went on that story. But also, I think, if it's true that Jesus uh, sometimes taught in Greek, then there's no need to think of a big gap between the words in the Gospels and what Jesus actually said. Um, also, it gives you Jesus taught his words memorably. He crafted them. And that should be an inspiration to you uh, as uh, preachers. So here's the popular magazine, again, tinnerhouse.com magazine, and it's issue seven if you want to look at for more on Jesus speaking Greek. Uh, I'll give you some of the references there, and hopefully there will be some questions. Thank you very much for listening. <laughs>